All right, all right. Hey, first off, um, it's just awesome to see you this morning. Awesome to worship with you. My name is Andrew, and uh, together with my wife, Grace, and a bunch of other amazing people here at the church, we, we have the honor of leading Riverbend. And uh, we're just all about learning from Jesus his way and then putting it into practice. That's what the whole gathering's about today. It's not about us. It's not about um, the thing that we're doing here. It's about what King Jesus is doing. And he promised us that he's going to unite all things in heaven and on earth one day. And this is what we're looking towards and this is what we're looking forward to. Um, and I just want to begin in this way. First of all, if I, I've been like battling losing my voice this week, so if I lose my voice during the, it's not like I've taken up smoking ink or something like that. I'm just like recovering from something. Still negative, two negative COVID tests this week, so I'm just like safe to be here. Like we can still be friends, uh, but um, but I might lose my voice. But uh, I wanted to start in this way. Um, we uh, before we uh, gather every single Sunday, we we spend like 20 minutes in prayer. And as we were praying, um, one of my friends was just feeling this sense that the Lord wanted to bring reconciliation and restoration to someone here today, maybe multiple people. Um, and Lorinda just had that really strong on her heart. And so I don't, I don't know uh, what you've been through this week or whatever, but, but I do just want to pray over us and pray over you specifically if you like are in need of reconciliation with a key relationship in your life. I just want to pray that over us and then also our time in the scriptures. So Father, uh, we just, we just um, yeah, we're, we're in, we, we have no interest in a, in a show. We have no interest in uh, any, any kind of contrived Christianity. We just, we just want you. And just like we sang, like we just want your presence and we want you. And so God, I just pray, like as the scriptures say in, in Chronicles, that your, your eyes are looking to and fro across the earth to strongly support those whose hearts are fully yours. And I just pray that you'll be able to look down on Riverbend Church right now, the 9 a.m. gathering, and say, yeah, those people are my people. Their heart, I have their hearts. Their hearts are mine. And I pray specifically for anyone here who is just in a deep need of reconciliation in their life. Maybe they have suffered a, a broken or fractured relationship in some way. I just pray in the name of Jesus that you would bring those things uh, what, like the exact thing that you want to do, the exact thing that you want to say to my friends here today, God, I pray that right now in the quiet, you would speak to them. And would you do the necessary thing of changing hearts, uh, softening hearts so that reconciliation is even possible. And Lord, we, we boldly come before your throne of grace as your children, and we anticipate you moving with power in our gathering today. And we ask that you would genuinely speak to us and transform our hearts, God, through the ministry of your word, not through a preacher's mouth, but through the ministry of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Okay, so today's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have not you you you've not given me you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. And then the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And he took him outside and said, look up to the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. And he also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Have a seat. So if you're uh, new or you're just joining us this morning, uh, we are in a series we're calling Origins in the whole book of Genesis. And we're really beginning to sort of pick up speed now as the book focuses on God's 
redemption plan or God's plan to redeem the world. So just to catch you up really briefly if you're new, after a really great start, the world has quickly descended into evil and brokenness. And it began in this beautiful garden, the place called Eden with God. He's blessing humans and he's calling us as his chosen ones, as his apple of his eye, as his imago Dei, to fill the earth and to take care of it. That's the commission. Fill the earth, take care of it. But instead, humans rebel against God and do the opposite. And then the results of their rebellion is also the opposite of what God intended. The earth is filled with chaos and violence and injustice. And we learn in the story of Genesis that it grieves God's heart. God's heart is grieved. And when God is grieved, he decides to act. And so this is what he does. This is what uh, the rest of Genesis and really the whole, uh, the whole Bible is what is known in theology as the mission of God or sometimes called redemptive history. So because of his love for you and because of his love for the world, which is so great, what we learn about God is that he will stop at nothing, literally nothing. He will stop at nothing to redeem us, to rescue us, to save us, and to make things right. And that story is just kind of getting off the ground here uh, in the early chapters of Genesis. And so what we found last week was that um, God's plan to redeem, uh, it starts in this really surprising way. Right? So God, he could have like formed an army, or he could have formed a government, or he could have formed a school, or he could have formed an institution or a company, but that's not what God does. In the beginning of God's redemption plan, this is what he does. He makes a promise to bless a family. He makes a promise to bless a family. He says, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. And all of the families of the earth are going to be blessed through you. He blesses a family. And last week, if you're here, you may remember that we discovered that this is essentially God making a vow. The closest thing we have in our culture is God is making a vow. Like a groom at his wedding ceremony vows to be faithful to his bride. He's saying, I'm your God. You're my people. We're in this together forever. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to take care of you so that you'll be a blessing. Now, the reason why we major on this point is because this is a major motif, one of the top five themes of the entire scripture. God's plan has not changed. He's still choosing to promise to bless a family, and then through the family, he is spreading his blessing to all the families of the earth. That is God's plan A for redemption. And that's exactly what God is doing through his church. It's no surprise, it should, it's no coincidence that we are then called like the children of Abraham or the family of Abraham, or we are the children, the family of God. This is the, one of the most, if not the most uh, prolific identifiers of the church is the family of God. And so we have been blessed Not so that we could sit in this church and feel self-satisfied about being chosen and forgiven, but so that we would be a blessing to all of the families of the earth. That's our call. That's our commissioning. God's plan has not changed. And you have been blessed by God. Amen? You've been blessed by God. Okay. So Abraham believes. This is the the moment where the, the story really begins to pick up because Abraham believes God and obeys him. And we left off last week with Abraham at 75 years old, packing up his entire family and leaving the only home that he's ever known, venturing off into the unknown. I think I just quoted like two song lyrics in about one sentence. Like 1980s classic rock and Frozen. All in, not, every, not every preacher can do that, you guys. But your boy, your boy can quote Frozen in a sermon about Abraham. Okay. So Genesis 15, where we're at today, this happens several years after Abraham believed God and left Ur for the land of promise. And now it's years later, he still has no land, and he still has no son. So in chapter 15, Abraham is having this dialogue with God, which is what we just read. He's having this back and forth dialogue with God. And Abraham is wrestling with his unfulfilled dreams and diminishing hope. He's wrestling with his unfulfilled fulfilled dreams and diminishing hope. God, you said, you said I was going to have a son. And so far that's not happened. So then how about my right hand man? How about this guy Eliezer? Why don't you establish my line through him? It's not what you promised, but my vision and my hope is fading. 
So I'm ready, I'm feeling ready to settle for option B. That's the beginning of Abraham's sort of dialogue with God. Has anybody ever felt like that before? Diminishing hope or a lack of trust. See, Abraham is wrestling with these unfulfilled dreams and promises. But then God reassures him. That's kind of the second part of the dialogue. God reassures him and says, no, no, first of all, I am with you. And then he says, I am your great reward. I am it. So when you have me, you have everything. When you have me, you can trust me that I'm going to come through. Remember, I vowed to you. God's saying, remember, I vowed to you. And remember, what we learn about God is that he never goes back on his word. He never goes back on his promise. If he's made a promise, he intends to keep it. So essentially what God is saying, hey, I'm your reward. You can trust me on this. You can trust me in this. Second of all, your heir's not going to be your employee. Your employee is not going to be your heir. You are going to have a son. Sarah's going to give birth to a son. And then he takes him out to look at the stars. He says, look at the stars. By the way, I made all these stars. So essentially is one of the sort of underlying messages there. I've made all of the stars. So your descendants are going to outnumber these. This is how God reassures Abraham. He says, look it, I'm capable of all of this. I'm capable of making the universe. And so I'm capable of keeping my promise. And Abraham believes God. And it's credited to him as righteousness. A very significant phrase that we'll, we'll find as you read your Bible. You'll see that phrase come up all over the place. And it's always sort of hyperlinking back to this moment here where Abraham hoped against hope. When it made no sense, he trusted because the Lord had vowed to him what he promised and he believed him. So the main reflection for today is this. It took 25 years for that initial promise in Genesis 12 to come, to, to come through. Sarah had a son 25 years after. They had a son named Isaac. Here's a here's reflection. 25 years is a long time to wait for God's promise, especially when you're living in the desert, right? And we know very little about Abraham's time in the desert um, there's several years of his story that are just like blank in, in the chapters of Genesis. Historians can't really even fill in the gaps for us either. All we know is that he obeyed God, he trusted God, and the reward of his obedience was 25 years after. And what we're going to call this is just Abraham's years of obscurity. His years of obscurity. He's just wandering in the desert, just waiting for God to move with power. That's literally all that he's able to do at this point. Now, the reason why this is such a significant thing to pay attention to is that Abraham is not the only one who experiences this. Believe it or not, this becomes a very, very, very common life trajectory with people that God uses greatly in his plan to bring redemption to all the families of the earth. Let me repeat that. This is a very common life trajectory for Abraham and for others who God uses greatly in his plan to redeem the world. Noah, for example, he built the ark and was building the ark for decades prior to that first drop of rain. And during those years, he was a social outcast uh, in his community. Moses, at age 40, He was outraged at the injustice against his people in Egypt, and so he took matters into his own hands. He ended up killing a a vicious slave driver because he was taking uh, uh, his his, his anger out. And that premature act of of justice, it, it sent Moses into 40 years of obscurity in the desert, a full 40 years before the Lord spoke to him in a burning bush. And it was after those 40 years that God sent him back to Egypt to rescue his people. Also David, he was chosen by God to be king decades before he took the throne. And during his season of of obscurity, his predecessor, King Saul, was jealous and insecure and several times had tried to kill David. And instead, David just kind of absorbs all of that hatred. Then we also have the Apostle Paul. After he became a follower of Jesus on the road to Damascus, he spent 14 years in obscurity before he ever went on a missionary journey, before he ever planted a church. So this is becoming a common life trajectory for those that God is using greatly in the kingdom of God, a season of obscurity. So there you go. In these years, you got guys like Abraham and Paul. They're basically unknown. No one's calling their name. 
No one really is following their lead. They become a hero in the Bible, but, but in those days, they're obscure. They're unknown. No one really cares about what they think or no one's really booking him to come preach. They're not, he's not got a massive following on Instagram or anything like that. There's no event where Abraham or Moses or Paul is like the headliner. They're just in obscurity. And, and I, I would venture to guess that many of you can relate to this feeling of adversity, of obscurity. You've got a lot of passion. You feel like you have a lot to offer the world and to contribute to the world, but no one's really paying attention to you. And no one's really uh, like giving you any of their, their praise. You don't have much influence. And maybe this has been going on for a long time, and you're like not even sure when or if any of that's going to change. So you, like Abraham, are in obscurity. And in his case and in your case, obscurity is not a mistake. It's not a coincidence, and it's not like you being a failure. That's not it. Actually, what we see in the story of the scriptures is that obscurity is a necessary part of your journey of faith and the mark that you will eventually make on the world. Let me explain this. Number one, we're all following the pattern that has been handed down by Jesus. We're all following the pattern that's been handed down by Jesus. Pete Scazzaro writes this, 90% of Jesus' ministry, 29 years, was spent in obscurity, hiddenness, and the unseen. This was as important as his three active years. They provided the character foundation for him to walk through the temptations in the wilderness and the pressures from the people around, them, around him. And these years also empowered him to live an eternally fruitful life. So as a result, when he was active, Jesus was able to resist the evil one and choose God's will to go the way of the cross. So good. So that there, there's that. There's also that we have a rich heritage in our faith of this as well. Like the Desert Fathers, for example. Obscurity was seen as a rite of passage to the Desert Fathers. There's a, a, a saint in the Catholic tradition who's a contemplative mystic. His name's St. Bernard, where, which I'm guessing where we get the dog breed name. I'm not sure. Um, but he, he, he wrote that action and contemplation together is the highest vocation. He also wrote that there's no room for activism that is not being nourished by a rich interior life with God. And then he goes on to say that many active people are overly active because they find the discipline of the interior life tedious and boring. And that's what he actually calls sloth. He calls that sloth. Sloth is activism without contemplation. In his mind, that's real laziness. In other words, we cannot give away something that we ourselves do not possess. And 75-year-old Abraham was enthusiastic and filled with hope, but his faith was unproven and untested. Now, I'm sure he was not happy about those 25 years that he had to spend waiting on God's promise. But looking back with the benefit of hindsight, those years were a gift. And your obscurity is a gift as well. Obscurity is the training ground for the formation of your character. Obscurity is a training ground for the formation of your character. In the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by uh, Stephen R. Covey, it's a really fascinating read, by the way. It's been around forever. It's free on Kindle, just saying. Little plug. He writes that uh, somewhere in the 20th century, the definite, if I lost you, come back to me, because this is like, this is really important. Somewhere in the 20th century, the definition of success changed from being a person of virtue to other people perceiving you as virtuous. You see the momentum shift there. Like, this is, this is a, a, a dangerous proposition. It's the difference of being defined by your interior life to being defined externally by what other people say or think or perceive you to be. And that is a massive difference. No longer is important for you to actually be kind and generous. What matters is other people perceiving you or thinking or seeing you as kind and generous. And that is a very, very big difference. Play that story out a few decades and you have the 21st century in, in America. For example, uh, today we're living in a phenomenon known as the cult of self. We've talked about this throughout our series in Genesis. It's actually nothing new. It's just something that's being repeated in our day. Um, the initial rebellion is is Adam and Eve choosing to go their own way 
choosing to define good and evil for themselves instead of relying and trusting in God. And today we have that same story playing out again in our culture. Over 80% of Americans, when polled, believe that they're above average. That's the most American stat in the entire world. Also, according to a New York Times poll, about 40% of Gen Z want to be an influencer for a living. I'm not sure if the economics of that will actually work out. A huge amount of youth believe that they're going to be rich and famous by 25. So our view of ourselves and our society are not built for being content in seasons of obscurity. And we don't, we don't value, we're, tell, we're actually taught instead to be self-satisfied without any real interior life at all, without any rites of passage, without any major journey of character formation. But in the story of the scriptures, adversity and obscurity are the proving ground for your faith. In Romans chapter 4, when Paul is writing about Abraham, this is what he says. Abraham did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but he was what? Strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that, what God, that God had power to do what he promised. And that is why it was credited to him as righteousness. He grew strong in his faith and gave glory to God. Now, if you know Abraham's full story, which I know many of you do, you know that Paul's actually being quite generous with Abraham because there are moments in the story where it really appears that he was weak in faith, where it really appears that he had forgotten God's promise altogether and was going out on his own way. But when you pay attention to what Paul's actually saying, is, I don't know, he became strong in faith. When he was 75, when the promise first happened, no, 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 that was untested. That was untested faith. But by the time that Abraham had Isaac, his faith had matured and had grown. So those years of obscurity actually produced in him resilient faith in God's promise. And that's what you and I, we actually long for, what we actually want. In my early years, I was uh, fortunate enough to have a mentor named Stan. If you've been around a while, you've probably heard me tell a story or two about Stan. He's the most incredible guy. He's not a preacher. He's not a pastor. Uh, he's just a good man. He's 30 years older than me. He loves Jesus. And I've learned tons from him over the years. Don't grow old without having mentors, by the way. Don't do it. I've got at least three at all times, and I highly recommend. We just started the women's mentoring program. I highly recommend that you are uh, being mentored. So in my early 20s, uh, I was being mentored by Stan, and I had a friend who was like kind of a failure to launch situation. And so, uh, so I was like, man, Stan, he doesn't really have a mentor. Do you think you could like take him out backpacking or something like that and just kind of see if you can pour into his life a little bit? And so they went for a backpacking trip. And when they got back, I sat down with Stan. I was just so excited to learn what they had sort of talked about. I was hoping that my buddy would have a breakthrough. So I asked him, hey, how did it go? How did it go with, with Sean? And he said, oh, you know, well, it went okay. He's still got a lot to learn. And I was like, well, what do you mean by that? He's like, well, he still thinks he knows stuff. <laughs> and that, that one line has stuck with me ever since because I think it is a, such an incisive and accurate assessment of our generation, really, thinking that we know stuff without true wisdom, without true true, like the scriptures informing us without true life experience, it actually limits us from the influence and the contribution that God has actually designed you for. So Abraham's years of obscurity is not God trying to get Abraham to lower his expectations for life. He's actually trying to prepare Abraham for the life that he was designed and destined for. And that preparation's necessary. And when that preparation doesn't happen, 10 times out of 10, it goes horribly wrong. And there, we all know examples of that. So obscurity is the gift that starves the cult of self and cures our exaggerated sense of self-importance. Obscurity is the gift that starves the cult of self and cures our exaggerated sense of self-importance. So Abraham was not ready to become the father of many nations when God called him. He wasn't ready for it without being deeply formed in the desert. Being deeply formed in the desert is what prepared him for receiving God's promise and the great spiritual authority and power that came with it. Uh, that mindset is, 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 uh, is a mature mindset. And the mature mindset 
we find uh, many different places in the scriptures, but my favorite for right now comes from Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. Here's a mature mindset that I think that Abraham emerged out of the desert with. For by grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. Think of yourself with sober judgment. (laughs) Not going to hear that message on TikTok. (laughs) Later in the same chapter, he says, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourself. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Do not be proud. Be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. These are, this is a life architecture that you learn through the crucible of the desert season of obscurity and adversity. So you want to make a mark in the world and you want to live a life that matters and I believe that you will. But it's actually in the quiet place over time where we become the kinds of people who possess God's patient and gracious heart for the world. And this is what we must have if we're going to be used greatly by God. Obscurity is actually good for you. Um, 15 years later, my buddy, who we were kind of poking fun of a couple minutes ago, is a completely different human being. And he is a wise person who I would recommend you be mentored by. And so, so time in obscurity is actually what we need. Here's a few lessons that I have personally learned in, in a season of obscurity. And then I'm also presently learning. I'm not like I haven't arrived, right? You're like, we, we, we know, dude. We know. We know you haven't arrived. It's abundantly clear. But I just want to like... State it, all right? I have, okay, self-awareness. <laughs> okay, so um, obscurity is where we learn several things. Number one, we learn patience. And patience is this, that we, we understand that only God is in control of the passage of time. Only he is in control of outcomes. I am not. We also learn restraint. Restraint keeps us from reaching for glory that belongs to God. Reaching for accolade, that belongs to God. We learn submission, that I'm actually not autonomous. I'm not sovereign. Only God is. And I actually need others, and I need to be dependent on others, and I need to be submitted to others in order to become mature in Christ. Humility. I am not the center of the universe. God is the center of the universe. It's also where we learn self-awareness. I've learned personally, I'm kind of strong in faith and boldness and courage and stuff like that, but I'm weak in gentleness. I tend to be critical of others. That's something that the Lord has shown me over time. That's a pretty significant hum. That's going to be distracting, isn't it? It's distracting to me. Hey, I actually, have, I think I might know what that is. So on the, so we're going to have a little, you and me, Luke, we're going to have a little technical talk, okay? So on the back of the soundboard, there is like a few cables. Ah, you did it. Yeah. So, yes, Luke, everybody. Sound guys never get any recognition unless it's like, the, hey, what's wrong with the sound today? So the real story on that is that we have a cable that's starting to fail. It hasn't failed completely yet. And I haven't swapped it out yet because it means going through the attic and running cables, which I hate to do. And so we need to do it. Now that it's interrupted a teaching, we need to do it. So, all right. All right, back to where I was at. Where was I at? Oh, self-awareness. Yeah, self-awareness. <laughs> another thing we learn, uh, another thing we learn in, in obscurity is we learn how to deflect praise. I do not believe my own hype. If there's something beautiful there's something praiseworthy in me than the credit, it goes to God, not to me. We also learn to listen and to think well. 
I can pay attention to other people's points of view and I can meditate and think clearly before I speak back and before I respond. This is something we learn over time in seasons of obscurity. We also learn to practice secret righteousness. Things like generosity, things like prayer, your prayer closet, your bank account, how you spend those, those hours and that time and that re, those resources, they are secret for a reason. Also to serve when no one's watching. I don't need to get noticed to do the right thing. I doesn't need to be posted somewhere in order for it to have actually happened. See, Jesus made it abundantly clear that if we want to become great in the kingdom of God, we must learn to become the greatest servant. That was Jesus about 12 times, at least, in the Gospels. So the, one, the ones who are like quietly, secretly, selflessly giving their lives away, these are the ones who are paying attention to Jesus' words, and they'll be richly rewarded in the age to come. We also learn to practice the presence of God, that we are always connected and present with the Spirit of God moment by moment throughout our life. And we actually learn the discipline of being present and active before God throughout our lives. And then also, finally, to strengthen our interior lives. I'm not defined by what other people say or think about me. I am secure in who I am in Jesus. I'm a son of God. I'm a daughter of God. And who he says I am and what he says about me is the most important thing. So these are the ways that God wants to shape our heart. When no one else is watching, when no one else is paying attention, I believe these are essential parts of being a wise and mature Jesus person who's capable of making a positive impact in the world without it being bent in the wrong direction. So we've been so busy trying to build our personal brand and gain influence that we've actually rejected our formation. And, that's a, and that we are living in the results of that. So we actually shouldn't be afraid of obscurity. I think we should be afraid of becoming self-satisfied with mediocrity. With being, being self-satisfied with a, with a uh, weak interior life and character. With worldly wisdom. Those are the things that we should be concerned about having. So the process of our formation shapes us into the kind of person that God will use to make a positive impact in the world. And when you practice his presence, he makes you that kind of person that wants the things that God wants in the world. So in other words, what's happening as we practice God's presence is, it's like you know your mom used to say, bad company corrupts good morals. It also works in reverse. When you spend copious amounts of time in the presence of the Lord, his character Things like gratitude and humility and patience and love and generosity and kindness, they begin to rub off on you in the exact same way. So you cannot acquire these things that we're talking about, that list that I just shared with you. You can't acquire that stuff through information transfer. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't just work, oh, I learned about patience. All of a sudden, I'm a patient person. That's not how life works, sadly, right? You actually learn it in the quiet with, with God. And then the character that is formed in us by God's Spirit begins to then work its way out into your exterior life and your relationships. You're not acting like a generous and kind person. You're not trying to be a kind and generous person. You are a kind and generous person. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10. The prophet uh, speaks to the shattered king who's standing before Jerusalem in ruins. He says, do not despise the day of small things. Do not despise the day of small things. That is good. So I believe deep down that whether we're present to this or not, we don't actually want an influence that outpaces our character. We don't want influence that outpaces our character. And we've seen, because we've seen that actually play out too many times in the church. It ends with the moral failure of a charismatic leader or it, uh, the fallout from it and people's sort of deconstruction, or it leads to like a deformed culture uh, where the in-group is really self-satisfied in an echo chamber, but then they're blind to what they're missing, and usually what we're missing is the heart of God, the heart of love for the people around us. Now, um, Riverbend is, is far from a perfect church. You guys know that. Exhibit A, right, right in front of you, right? But here at Riverbend, we are determined to see God's kingdom come here. And we know it's not going to come any other way 
than by submitting ourselves to the journey that God has put in front of us. And that will most likely and is often includes this season of adversity and of obscurity. This is our ambition. Our ambition is we want to see God's kingdom come. And hopefully it's a godly ambition. And if, you know, if you've been around, you know that our vision has been and is for spiritual awakening in Central Oregon. And the, the, like our heartbeat is to pray it in. And so if you've been around, you know, uh, we, during Lent, we did 40 days of nonstop around-the-clock prayer here in the prayer room for spiritual awakening. We have multiple times every single week where you can come and pray with us, Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Wednesday morning, 6.30 to 7.30, Friday morning, 5.30 to 6.30 for the guys, many other things like that in, in, in the works as well. And so we, we just believe that we want to contend uh, actively to see God's kingdom come here. We know we can't change people's hearts, but we can pray that God would change people's hearts to receive the gospel as it goes out in power. And that's what we're devoting ourselves to in these like years of the 2020s. And um, I, a question that keeps coming back to my mind the more that I pray this way is, is, a, is a challenging question and um, I, it often comes to me when I pray, and, and, I, and, and maybe for some of you too, because I remind you of it often, which is that if God were to answer, answer our wildest prayers for revival, would we have the character to lead it forward? Would we actually have the strength of soul to, to carry forward? You see what I'm getting at? First off, we're wanting to challenge your resolve to pray, like definitely be praying. But if we did pray like that, and revival did break through the hard soil of the Pacific Northwest in the 2020s, and all of that, would you and I, would we, not just me, not, not, I'm not talking about me here, I'm talking about us as the church, would we have the maturity in Christ to sustain that ministry for a lifetime? So what I mean by that is, can you handle people loving you? Can you handle that without it getting, going to your head? Can you handle people hating you? Should people be following you? Should people be training to become like you are? Would we want hundreds of more yous running around Bend? Would that actually be a good thing? Or would we just be creating more problems? People who gossip. People who are always stressed out. People who say one thing or do another. What would the consequences be if there were hundreds of people following your example? Would that be a blessing to our city? Or would it be problematic? Now... I'm not, saying all, I'm not saying at all that we should be like lowering our expectations in prayer. What I'm saying is that if anything, we need to be, be, be praying with more urgency and more expectation for God to move with power. If God is the one who created the stars, the creator of the universe, who promised to make all things new, then you and I, we cannot pray something that's too much for him, that's too, that's too outlandish for him. There's no such thing as a prayer that God can't answer, Right? And so I'm not saying to lower your expectations in prayer. If anything, I'm, I'm saying, like, turn it up. Let's turn it up. And this is Abraham's attitude, actually. Is he's holding on to God's promise. He's hoping against hope when everyone else is like, dude, you're as good as dead. You're 90. Your wife is 80. You have no kids. Like, you lost your shot. And he's going, God said, he vowed to me. God vowed to me. This is what was going to happen. So I, tr- I will hold on to his promise, even though the biology of it doesn't make sense. I still hold on to God's promise. So that's, that's Abraham's attitude. I think we ought to have that same kind of attitude as we pray. So definitely hold on to hope. Hold on to God's promise. But be willing. This is the, this is the, final, the final point, okay? Final point, I promise. <laughs> is be willing to become the answer to your own prayers for revival through the journey of character formation. Be willing to become the answer to your own prayers. Yeah, there are people desperate and hurting in our city. Pray that you would become the kind of person with the character and the capacity and the influence and the attitude and the life architecture to be able to step in and to actually be a blessing to all the families of the earth. You become the answer to your prayers. And, and I don't say that tritely. I say let God form that in you over your years of obscurity. See, there's so much meaning in obscurity that we've totally missed over because we like to skip over those chapters and we want to get to the part where the victory's won. But it's actually the victory's won in those years. They're won, it's won in obscurity. 
And it was Paul long after his season of obscurity, by the way, 14 years of obscurity, that he was able to say, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul was able to say that. He was able to say from a sincere heart, if you learn from me, if you learn from me, you'll become a more kind, you'll become a more gracious, you'll become a more generous, you'll become a more patient and loving and humble person. You will be more like Jesus if you put into practice the things that you have seen in my life and heard from me as I've taught to you. Like, Paul is able to say that non-ironically. <laughs> like, he's able to say it with sincerity. And you want to be able to say that kind of thing as well. And you become that kind of person not by being on stages and receiving accolades. That's not how you become that kind of person. You become that kind of person by practicing righteousness in secret. It's actually one of the main subjects of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6 in particular. Also check this out, 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. That's the word of the Lord. So if you're faithful, God may elevate you and you may be seen by others, but you will have the maturity in Christ not to be intoxicated by the power. And that's what you want. You've heard the phrase, power corrupts, power, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. I think that's totally true. I think it's been true in the church, sadly, particularly our stream, evangelical sort of low church or whatever. It's been, you know, the list of fallen celebrity pastors from the last decade is astonishing, right? But when you have lived faithfully and well during seasons of obscurity, then you actually possess the strength of soul to choose the cross and not the throne. And leaders with integrity, they follow Jesus' example. They do not enthrone themselves. They take up their cross. Because that's exactly what Jesus taught us to do. So leaders with integrity, they, they follow that example from Jesus. They use their power to serve others and to benefit others, uh, benefit society as a whole. They don't have to be told, wise leaders with integrity don't have to be told to keep their ego in check. They're already deploying their authority and their power and their influence for the good of others and not for the good of themselves. This is the way of Jesus. This is the way of the cross without question. And I'm fortunate enough to have a few friends, notable uh, friends become like minor Christian celebrities um, in our culture, and they have uh, an uncharacteristically insane, huge influence in our time. And by the way, people who have become famous um, as, as, as a Jesus follower, they don't describe that as being good for their soul. Not the ones that I, that I know. The ones that I know who've gotten famous on stages with thousands of people watching them and so no one describes it as fun. They don't describe it as what they imagined or good for them, good for their soul. They describe it as difficult, as agonizing, as filled with responsibility. And I actually asked one of these uh, men, who I'm fortunate to know, like his advice about gaining influence and all of that. And he says, he, he's, I'll never forget what he says. He says, you got to be the one to dethrone yourself. Dethrone yourself. Make Jesus famous. And use whatever you have to advance his kingdom, not your own little brand or your empire or whatever. That is someone who can be trusted with real authority. That is someone who can be trusted uh, with real leadership. And I think you want to be the kind of person who God can trust with real spiritual authority as well. And I pray that as we, we, we gain this visibility, we gain this influence when you have the Christian character to handle it wisely. And that might just take some decades. But the, the, the message of the Bible, not just with Abraham, but with Noah, with Moses, with David, with Paul, and many others we haven't talked about, the journey is actually worth it. And we are still modeling our faith after Abraham. He's still famous in our day. We're modeling his, our faith after him. Last quote from Henry Nouwen, uh, great Catholic contemplative writer, he writes this, mostly we think of people with great authority as higher up, far away, hard to reach. But spiritual authority comes, with, comes from compassion and emerges from deep inner solidarity with those who are subject to authority. So the one who is fully like us, who deeply understands our joys, our pains, our hopes, our desires, and who's willing to walk with us, 
That is the one that we, to whom we gladly give authority and whose subjects we are willing to be. It is the compassionate authority that empowers, encourages, calls forth hidden gifts, and enables great things to happen. That is Jesus. Great spiritual authority with the humility to walk with people through the painful parts of their story. So he, it's like, and this is what the church is actually for, by the way. The family of God is for this. Here at, at some churches, this isn't necessarily the case. Hopefully it's true here that at Riverbend, there is no ladder to climb. And there's no hierarchy to climb through the ranks through. Hopefully all that you'll find here at Riverbend is just people to be loved. By the way, people to be loved, they will require all of your, I'm not, not anything against you guys, but a people to be loved, a community to be loved, they will require all of your patience, all of your humility, all of your grace, all of your kindness. And that's actually good for you. That's good for you to get reps being patient and kind and, and gracious. The conclusion of our story is that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So as we close, just a few things, uh, questions for your reflection. Hopefully you might like take a picture of this slide or you might write it down in your journal, reflect on it later as you spend time alone in the quiet with God this week. Here's number one. Embrace your season of obscurity as God's way of forming character in you. Just embrace it. Accept it. You can waste it or you can embrace it and grow from it. This is God's way of forming character in you. Number two, ask God what gap do you want to address in the soul of my leadership first? God, where do you want to get started with me? Go to work in my heart. Number three, are you being faithful to advance God's kingdom with the power and the influence that you have today? Right? With the power and the influence that you have today. Think of the parable of the talents. With what God has given you to be faithful with today, are you leveraging what God has given you for the kingdom today? Why would he trust you with great spiritual authority if the little bit of spiritual authority that he's given you, you're not wielding well? So the invitation is to be faithful to advance God's kingdom with the influence that you have today. Are you, number four, are you becoming the kind of person who God can trust with real spiritual power? And finally, like in the words of Genesis 15, are you content with the Lord being your reward? He said, I'm your reward, Abraham. I'm your reward. Paul, later in his life, he said, all the things that I used to be going after, I count them all as trash count them all as lost for the sake, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. This is our ambition, folks. This is what it means to be in God's family. It's not a ladder to climb. It's not a hierarchy here. There's just the people to be loved. They're going to require all of your patience and humility. And the reward is him. It's the Lord himself. And I just, I challenge you, hopefully just from a place of kindness in my heart to seek the Lord with everything in you. Don't let there be any duplicity in your heart. Don't let there be any like false gods or idols. Don't go your own way. Just like decide, let's decide that we want to follow after Jesus. And these, the, the last little bit of our gathering that Danny and the team has prepared has all been curated for us to just like make that proclamation in our hearts. So I wanna just encourage you to make a proclamation in your heart today that you are going to seek him with everything and that he will be your reward. So will you please stand and let's pray. Father, we, we just, um, yeah, gratitude is the primary thing, I guess. We're just so grateful and thankful that you have vowed to be our God. If it's helpful you, for you, I just want you to imagine yourself before God. The scriptures say in, in Hebrews that we can come boldly before the throne of grace with confidence 
find mercy and grace for help in time of need. And so I just want you to visualize yourself there before God. And just like a groom on his wedding day vows to be faithful to his bride, I want you to imagine the Lord reaching out to you and pulling you close to him. And in making that vow to you, you are going to be my person. You are my person. You are my daughter. You are my son. I love you. And that is who you are. That is what defines you. Not what others think or say. That is what defines you. now I just want you to visualize making your vow back to him where you lead me I will follow who you've called me to become I will become what you say my goal is is my true goal what you say is right is what I think is right too pledged and promised faithfulness to you you pledge it back to him God there is no other God besides you there's no one else for us but you we glory uh, our glory is in your name and it is in your kingdom and we long for you God to move in power in our hearts and our lives Embrace the reality that although you may be in a, in, a, in a season of obscurity where you feel unseen, He sees you. He is pledged to be your God. Dying childless in the desert is not your destiny. He's promised to envelop you in to His kingdom and to His power by the Holy Spirit. So in the name of Jesus, I just want to pray the fresh filling of his Holy Spirit over you. God, I pray that you would rain down, that you would blow through this place, Holy Spirit, as you do. We're not shrinking back or lowering our expectations. We are, we are holding on to your promise. You said you were going to fill us with power. You said you're going to send us out as your people. You said you're going to make us holy and a light on a hill. You said these things, and we trust in your word. We trust in your promise. And we bless your name, Jesus.